we didn't sing that song last week. Tim, was it you who I heard go, why didn't we sing Revelation song when you did Revelation 4? And so we had to do it uh, today. I think you will see that uh, in the passage we're going to be in uh, this morning, it's going to parallel well with Revelation 4. Turn in your Bible to Revelation 19. We're being daring. We're going back to Revelation a second time. So Revelation 19, 6. Turn there, please. 6 through 10. We'll look at this passage in just a moment. If you were with us on our 80th year anniversary celebration that we had back in August, um, we had a great celebration day. The passage that we began with was the beginning of this series that we started on the church. And it was Pentecost, Acts 2, the beginning of the church where the Spirit came down, Peter preaches a sermon, lost people come to faith, they're cut to their heart, they repent, and then they set themselves out from amongst the people who are around them, they're baptized, and the institution of the church begins marking themselves out as this community of believers. And so since August, what we have been doing is looking at this community of believers, this community of the saints called the church. What is the church about? What does she do? Who is she? Who, who makes up the church? And so the aim has been, what we've attempted to do is not let the best business practices, not let what seems most logical to our senses, our modern day senses, but to ask the question this, what does it mean to be a New Testament church? And are we letting the Bible dictate how we do church on a Sunday morning and throughout the week? And so let's do that even if that means we must adjust, even if that means we have to go against the grain of modern-day evangelical culture, to go upstream. Let's do whatever it takes to make sure that we are a New Testament church. That's what we want Bethesda to be. And so uh, we looked at what it what is the mission of the church, which seems so obvious until it's not. And you get that part wrong, you get everything else wrong. We said the mission of the church is the words of Jesus. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And so Bethesda, our mission statement is to make disciples as a church, but also to do that individually. So we live as disciples. It's a responsibility for all of us. So we follow the Great Commission. That's what we do. That's what our ministry programs are for. That's what Sunday morning is for. Have you thought about how what we're doing in this moment right now, the answer to the question, who makes up the church dictates how the worship service is run. If this gathering is made up of non-believers, this would be a, this might be a, Billy Graham crusade. But is that what this is? No, this is a discipleship-making opportunity that we're growing. And then, we, yes, we call those who are lost in our midst. If you're lost in our midst, we call you to salvation and grow as disciples with us. But that mission is, is straightforward for us. The message that transforms us in this mission that we talk about is the gospel. Christ has come, died, resurrected from the dead, and all who place their faith in him do not have to live in their sin anymore. But know that when Revelation 4, which is happening even now, 
That we'll get to experience new life with the king in his throne room and be with him. And so we've talked about baptism and membership. We've talked about the Lord's Supper, church discipline, spiritual gifts. I should say this now before we get going. As I've talked with some of you about, many of you actually, about church membership, it seems like one of the, the biggest takeaways of this series has been the value of being a part of the body of Christ. I think that's what many of us have gotten out of this. And a statement, you don't know when you start teaching on something, what's going to click with people, but a phrase that we've been using that I've found has clicked with so many of us has been understanding, I think this has happened for many of us, that we've come to understand that church membership is not like having a Costco membership, but it's like being a part of the body, of, a, a member of the body of Christ, like an appendage. That's what, that's what it really means to be a member. It's not being a part of the country club. It's about being having your spiritual gift that incorporates you into the body of Christ as we're all underneath one spirit and we're living out our faith together. If you want evidence for church membership, look no further than 1 Corinthians 12. So talk about membership. A second thing that if you look back on the sermon series that we've done, you remember is this, and this is the elders, something the elders have talked about a lot is that we would make sure that we don't disconnect any longer church membership from baptism. And if you are baptized, you are a member of the body of Christ. It is the doorway into the body of Christ, and the Lord's Supper is the continuing meal of the body of Christ. We've talked about how Christ alone is the foundation of the church. We've talked about how for church leadership, it is led and over, uh, the overseers, the teachers of the church, or the elders... The deacons assist the elders in the work of ministry tangibly. And then we speak as one voice together as the congregation, the final authority underneath Jesus Christ. Lastly, lastly, uh, we saw last week that if you want a perfect, pristine picture of worship, uh, it's going to be Revelation 4. Revelation 4 is happening as this sermon, as this worship service is going on even now. That is the picture of worship. Lord willing, as we've done this, you have been affirmed in why Bethesda does what we do. Hopefully, you've also been challenged at certain points. Um, I, I, you know me. I, I'm a, uh, somebody who recommends books. The, the elders give me a hard time about this. I want to tell you about some books here. If you want to go further, uh, we have books in the library. Uh, there was a book that came out several years ago. I read it back in 2016, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And a book by Mark Dever, and he says there's nine things that you got to have if you're going to have a healthy church. Not to say there's only nine, but if you don't have all nine of these, you're in trouble. Gospel, mission, evangelism, a lot of things we've talked about here. And out of that came a series of a whole bunch of books, and, and we talk about much of this material. I want to recommend this to you. If you want to talk further, um, I would love to be able to do that with you. Today we come to the end, though. And we ask the question, how will this institution called the church end? Or better yet, how does new life with the people of God and our Lord in eternity begin? The answer is, is that it's going to take place over a meal. It will be a better meal than any meal we take part of as family members this week on Thursday. It will be a, the marriage supper between the bride and the lamb. Let me read to us out of 19... Revelation 19.6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, 
like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and, the bride has, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Father in heaven, who is seated on the throne, Jesus, who is at the right hand of the throne of God, Holy Spirit, who is before the throne of God and yet dwells within us, we ask you, to open our minds to see this wonderful picture of what we long for, look forward to, how it gives us hope despite some of the despair that a number of us are going through this morning. How is Revelation 19.6 good news and hope for us today? We need to know this, Lord. Speak to us now through your word. Your servants are listening. In Christ's name, amen. As we just read a moment ago, you might have felt like we parachuted right into the middle of a passage, and you would be right to feel that. I want to go back just a moment to make sense of our main passage in front of us. John has just got finished, has just finished giving a, a series of visions that he sees, one of them being about this harlot called Babylon the Great. If you read Revelation, there's a lot of imagery, that apocalyptic imagery, and it seems like this Babylon the Great seems to be a representation of apostate religious systems, perhaps also political systems, that has been thrown down and defeated. And this results in the worship, once again, in the throne room. The throne room of Revelation 4 is also pre present in Revelation 19.1. I want to read 1 through 5 because it will help us understand verse 6 and what we're looking at. Verse 1, this is the worship that comes as a result of the destruction of Babylon the Great. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders, the four living creatures, remember them? They fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. So you know we're in the throne room saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, small and great. And so, if God has defeated the great harlot in the previous account, now we have another woman who is present, and that is the bride of the Lamb. And so that's what's happening here from destruction of God's enemies to now him coming together with his people. 
And at the outset, you have to ask the question, where, does this, where and when does this marriage supper take place? I've been talking with a few people over the last week about their end times theology, and if you're one of those people who, who likes the charts and, and, and likes to, to, to look at the, the great tribulation or the millennial reign, if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay for our purposes uh, this morning. But you know there's a variety of views on, on these, right? You have the, this, what's known as the seven-year tribulation. Does Jesus come back before that? Does he come back after that? Does he come back in the middle of that? There's different views. What about uh, the, millennial, the millennial reign? You turn the page in your Bible, you'll see the beginning of Revelation 20 talks about the millennial reign of Christ. Some people believe that we are in the millennial reign of Christ right now. There's other people who see the life that we're living. Many like, were like this in the 19th century, missions-minded people who believe that through the work of evangelism and other means, that eventually Christ's kingdom, the millennial reign, would be inaugurated when things were at their best and you would see that thousand-year reign happen. It would be a post-millennial. Christ comes back at the end of, of that period. There's another view, the premillennial view, who, that sees that before this thousand-year reign of Christ begins, Christ will return at the beginning of this. And, and I would say, if you're curious to know, for my part... Um, I, I think the simplest reading is the best. If you read right after, so I just gave you before our passage, right after our passage is the rider on the white horse. Then after that is the, is the millennial reign. I would be what's described as a historic premillennialist, that Christ returns prior to the millennial reign. And even within that, you've got some debate on, is it literally a thousand years or is it a long time? Well, you can work that out. That's for another time. The question, though, is when does the supper happen? I think, again, the simplest reading is the best. That this marriage supper of the bride and the lamb takes place at the outset of the millennial reign of Christ. Where does it happen? We're simply not told. We're just told that John hears things. It's a, it's a vision that he ends up happening, ends up, ends up having. And you see there that he begins by saying, it seems to be the voice of a great multitude. It's like the roar of mighty waters. It's like the sound of mighty peals of thunder that are crying out. Again, with this apocalyptic text, he can't fully give you what he's seeing or what he's hearing, but he compares it to what he knows. He compares it to what he knows. And so if in Revelation 4, there is lightning that comes down with the sound of a mighty peal of thunder, here it is the voice of the saints, not lightning, that is leading to a, a loud, thunderous sound. And so the point is that this is no dead church service. This is a loud worship together with the Lamb. And so if you've been at a a Christian conference, or you've been to a lively church service where, where everybody's singing with one voice, and you can feel that feeling in your chest. It's just, you can, you can, the sound is hitting your chest, right? That gives me a little bit of a taste, or gives you hopefully a little bit of a taste of what is yet to come. It's powerful, but it's even better than anything we've ever experienced. It is the voice of the redeemed crying out, and what are they saying? Hallelujah. And so what I'm going to do next will not work unless you participate. <clears throat> hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. 
Okay, we'll stop there, okay? Praise ye the Lord. There's a reason, by the way, why I sit on the front row. It's not just because of my role as your pastor. It's because I can give a joyful shout and nobody will hear it. And so this is a Hebrew word, hallelujah. It's actually two words put together, right? Halu and yeah. Halu is, is the second person imperative of, of Hillel, and it means to praise, that you should praise. The second word there is Yah, and that's the abbreviation of the personal name for God, Yahweh. Yah, Yahweh. So praise Yah, praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. And so they don't worship without reason as they praise the Lord. There's a purpose for it here. Why do they worship? Why do they ascribe their highest worth to the Lord? Because He reigns. That's why. He reigns. He's seated on the throne. I'm reading a book right now, actually rereading a book, uh, a biography by Colin Hansen on uh, the life of Timothy Keller, a biography, and it's not a typical biography. It's, uh, it talks about the, the influences on Keller, and if you've ever read Keller, you know that his greatest influence was C.S. Lewis. It was C.S. Lewis, and in fact, when Hansen was interviewing people uh, who had been in Keller's church well before he was the well-known Presbyterian pastor in New York City. He was a small church pastor in Hopewell, Virginia, blue-collar, uh, working-class community, and he was there for 10 years. And I greatly appreciated hearing what, how he navigated that season and, and hearing about his initial season as a pastor. One of the parishioners of that church during that time said, you could always tell when Keller hadn't prepared adequately for his sermon, he would just start quoting from C.S. Lewis, and it was all to our benefit anyways, because C.S. Lewis is great. And one of the things that Keller got from, from C.S. Lewis was this idea of the true myth. True myth. There is a reason why people are drawn to, when they read, uh, they are drawn to novels and not the, the dense theological textbooks that I tend to enjoy. Uh, there's a reason why my wife loves the stories that end with a happy ending. Um, I'm, I'm aware of this reality. Both Christians and non-Christians love these great stories, even though they know that they're not true. Why, are we, why do we gravitate towards the great stories? Keller says... We are so deeply interested in these stories because we have intuitions of the creation, fall, redemption, restoration plot line of the Bible. Even if we repress the knowledge of that plot line intellectually, we can't not know it imaginatively. And our hearts are stirred by any stories that evoke it. There's a reason why we find this deep existential satisfaction in these stories, because we know that it's pointing to something else. It is pointing to the story that is behind all of the other stories. The ugly ducking, duckling that turns out to be the swan. The beauty who kisses and transforms the beast. Hercules who defeats the villain. We think of these stories of transformation. We think of some of the great stories. What do they always include? Sacrifice of the hero, Right? sacrifice of the hero that leads inevitably towards victory. And I just want to say I'm here to tell you that there is a great story behind all of the other myths, all of the other stories. It is the one myth that turns out in the end to actually be true. 
And that is the story of our Savior who has sacrificed so that he would be victorious. It is the story that you and I long for when we are watching that movie that gives us a thrill, reads a, reads a book that has that ending that we go, that was profound. It is pointing to something deeper within you and I that goes, that cries out for the one true myth. That is the story of Jesus Christ. What's even better to know is that this myth that turns out to be true it leads to this reality that you and I will reign with him at the end of all things. This passage that we have before us is the great story, the climax of the great story behind all the other stories that is actually the beginning for God and his people. It is the true myth that tells us that everything sad will one day become untrue. All that is sad is going to come untrue. John hears further rejoicing after hearing the rejoicing about this one who is reigning and is who is enthroned and those voices say let us rejoice i'm in verse seven let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory why because the marriage supper of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready we're rejoicing because a wedding is about to take place hmm I'm reminded in this moment that in this passage, it is the lamb who is central, but in the next passage, it is the rider on the white horse. What a thought to consider that your Savior is both the lamb and the lion at the same time. He is meek and lowly and gentle at heart, and yet he is not tame, but is powerful, and we are on the right side of him. We are rejoicing because the lamb has come. The bride has made herself ready. And when you see that word bride, it ought to cue you into what we have been talking about over the last 13 weeks. Who is the bride in scripture? But none other than the church. The church. What we have at the dawning of the new creation is the beginning of Christ coming together with his church. And so next week, we have a couple friends with us who are going to get married, and their marriage will be a little picture of the reality that we will all partake in together. Raquel will get herself ready for Sebastian. Sebastian will see her come down the aisle. And you and I will think of that picture and go, that's, that's a little mirror image of all of us and all Christians from all places and all times having been ready and prepared for Jesus, our Savior, who we will see face to face. I cannot wait for that final day. Can't wait for it. And so scripture uses this bridal imagery when it talks about Christ and the church. It uses the bridal imagery when it talks about Israel and Yahweh. And I'm taking time to belabor this point for this reason. The great thing about preaching week to week is that for guys like me, we can circle back to the previous week if we forgot something. And I want to do that in this moment. Last week, if you were with us, we talked about worship. And in part, we talked about how we worship during the, the praise and music time of our worship services. Get the metaphors right in Scripture, and you will worship the right kind of songs. Get the metaphors wrong, and you will worship to the wrong kind of songs. Let me show you what I mean by this. Not all worship music is created equally, in case you didn't know that. I have found myself listening to uh, worship music, either in the car, Apple Music, you know, whatever, on my phone, 
in churches all my life. And I've noticed something about a lot of evangelical songs. There are a number of them that seem to be oddly romantic. Have you ever caught on to that? That there's some worship songs out there that are like, that's really romantic. Okay. And they talk about my love relationship. Ladies, maybe you have never thought about this. I can guarantee you there's a few dudes in this room who have definitely thought through this as they've listened to some worship songs. And you hear some of these songs, and it talks about our relationship with Jesus in an oddly romantic way. And I can't help myself, so let me give you a few, a few lyrics to show you what I mean. Maybe you've sung this, heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss. Okay, we, are we feeling uncomfortable yet? Okay, let me give you another one. Oh, won't you dance with me, oh lover of my soul? That's another one that I've sang in the past. Or, and my intention is not to ruffle a few feathers here, but just to point it out, talking about God's overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love. I've never heard about Scripture describing God as if he's reckless. He's always deliberate in what he does. Uh, God, it's not like God can't contain himself. He knows exactly what he is doing. He has predestined all things. In him, all things hold together. All these lyrics that tend to paint a strong picture. And so, ladies, maybe you've never thought about this, but as a guy, I definitely have found myself singing some worship songs and going, oh, that's kind of weird. That's kind of strange. And, and, you know, there's been a conversation that's taken place in church, churches, evangelical churches over the last at least 10, probably 20 plus years, about the feminization of church about how church can easily become a place where it is for mom, it's for women, but it's, it's not, and the kids, but it's not for men. I'm going to tell you this, just to be straight with you all. I grew up in a household where dad didn't go to church. So this is something that's very personal for me. It's something I think about is, how do you get men in church? I heard one guy say, if you want to get men in church, get rid of the flowers and let the ladies just go nuts and decorating in the women's restroom and leave it at that, right? <laughs> you can take that for what you want, right? You see some strategies like that. But I think it matters that we care about our symbols, and we care about the things that we talk about, how we talk about them, and the things that we sing. And so I want you to think about this. If you're singing a worship song, and you can't tell whether that worship song that's supposed to be between you and God, you can't tell about whether it's between you and your boyfriend, you should probably pick a different worship song, find a new song. The problem is, not just that it makes men feel weird when we sing songs like this. I think that it's actually unbiblical because it's getting the metaphors wrong. Let me show you what I mean. What is the primary metaphor that Scripture uses in our relationship with God when it's talking about you, the individual Christian, and God? What's the primary metaphor that's used? Parental. It's parental. You are a child of God. And he is your father. You are a child of God, and he is your father. And Jesus, who does that make Jesus then? Your older brother. See the familial language that's used here. That's the individual, and we tend to mix that with the corporate metaphor. What is the corporate metaphor that is primarily used when it's talking about all of us? It's between Christ and the church. That's where the marital metaphor comes in. Marital, the lamb and the bride, Christ and the church. So be careful that you don't mix the metaphors. You are the individual, a child of the Father. And we together are the bride of Christ that will come together with all believers on that last day. Consider the imagery of how the church is described and follow it there. Something to think about. Metaphors matter. Let me keep going here. Verse 8, look at this with me. 
It was granted her, the bride, to clothe her with fine linen, bright and pure. What does that symbolize? For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Don't miss it. Does it say that she earned the right to have the fine linen? Does it say that she discovered the fine linen? Does it say that she found the right linen? The white linen, pardon me? No, it says it was granted to her. The right to be able to bear that fine linen. The pure, bright linen is the gift of God's grace to an undeserving bride. And so it's a wonderful thing to think about that God grants to us, his church, the right to be able to come together to worship him by grace. I love the idea that God's grace always leads to our actions. So you ask the question, do I do the righteous deeds because it is my own deed, my own act, my own, my own thing that I do? Or is it God who does the work? Is it God who does the work or is it I who do the work? That's why I love Philippians. That's why we began in Philippians last year. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You must work, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's grace inevitably leads to your righteous deeds. It has been granted that you would live a righteous life by his grace. And so she comes together, the bride, with the lamb, and she is pure. And I read those words, pure, and I know my own wicked heart, and I know that is not true for me. I am not naturally a pure person. I want to speak to those of us for just a moment. All of us, all of us fall in purity in some way, shape, or form. If we don't ignore our flaws, our sin, our offenses, we know that naturally that leads us to shame and despair. I want to speak to those of us who have fallen to sexual sin in particular. I want to do it by way of a story. When I was in high school, I went to a school that was very similar, many of you know this, to JVC. And if you can imagine JVC and Bethesda being in the same location, that's how my upbringing was. And so I went to school with my teachers, and I went to church with my teachers. It was all one big community uh, together. And there was a lot of benefits to that. There was also a lot of negatives, especially when you were acting a fool, like I was oftentimes. And so anyways, we would, uh, we would go to church together, we would worship together, I, I would take math class with the same people. And anyways, the school that I was at had a chapel on Tuesdays. And uh, they would have speakers come in, teachers would do things, and sometimes they would even do skits. And it's a skit that I remember. One of the teachers wanted to put on a skit advocating for sexual purity, saving yourself for marriage. And uh, she had one of the teachers that sat, uh, one of the students, a high school gal, sat down in a chair, and she had a rose in her hand, and uh, dramatic music began to play. And as she sat there with the rose in her hand, uh, a number of guys uh, came by and would pick a, a petal out from the rose and would, would take that with them. And, of course, you know, being dumb high school guys, you know, some of them would, would come up and just, you know, kind of yank at it to try to, you know, prove a point and be, you know, whatever. And so by the time the song ends, the dramatic music is over, the guys have gone off the, 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 the stage and she's sitting there and all she has is the, is the, the stem that is, you know, kind of bent and is just sitting in her hand right there. And it was a powerful image. That was probably, I don't know, 16 years ago, and I still remember that. And I remember that the message was 
when you do this, when you do not save yourself, but you give yourself over to other lovers, uh, you will have nothing left to give to your, your spouse one day. And I think, there's, I think there is merit. Let me say this. I think there's some merit in pointing out that our culture does not understand the searing effects to our souls um, when it comes to sexual intimacy and the consequences that it has. It was meant to be that way, by the way. It was meant to go beyond just the physical. So our culture gets that wrong. What I found in this scenario, this, this imagery that I had seen in front of me, was the message that preached all law and no gospel. And you know what the irony was? You know what the name of this girl was? Grace. <laughs> Grace. Here's what the gospel teaches. If you have messed it up in this area, and you have not saved yourself, you may have messed up last night. You may have given yourself over to that which has brought you shame. You may have committed sin that has made you far from being the pure picture of the bride here. Yes, for a number of us, we may not have saved ourselves for our spouses. We may have given ourselves over to other idols that have turned out to disappoint us in the end. But the grace of Jesus says that though you are impure, he can make you pure again. Even though your life has become dark, he can shine in the darkness. And even though you may have given yourself over to the wickedness of sexual sin, the grace which with he can close you by, clothe you by his righteousness, when you believe and enter into his family, can redeem you. And so your story up until this point doesn't have to be the end of the story, but you can enter into the great story that is behind all other stories if you are in him, when you enter into him. And so I just want to say this for some of us. You know that I do this. You know I love talking about the gospel. You know I like getting to this point in the sermon. And I can't help but wonder if for some of us they go, here he goes again, Aaron talking about the cross, Aaron talking about God's grace, Aaron talking about sin and how God can redeem us. I want you to know that those of us who I know who tend to be the ones that go, yes, the gospel, I already know that, tend to be the one who lack joy the most. And I want you to know, I want you to know, I will keep teaching God's grace until you start experiencing God's joy. Because that's the key to joy is experiencing the grace of God that comes when you realize what you have done as a sinner and then he redeems you and you don't deserve to reign with him, you don't deserve to be pure and he makes you pure despite who you are. God's grace to get to God's joy. Oh, that we would see that. John ends and he ends, of course he would say this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When you hear God's grace like that, I mean, how could you not be blessed? What a privilege it will be. John responds. He falls down prostrate in worship because he's so overwhelmed. He's so overwhelmed. And the angel looks at him and says, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. Nobody else is deserving, friend, of your worship. Nobody but God alone. I love the way one author has put it when it comes to this prophecy about Jesus, what revelation is all about. He says, the future has a name, Jesus of Nazareth. Or another author who says, the spirit of both proclamation and the telling of the future is bound up in the testimony of Jesus. Jesus, the lamb, is the theme of revelation. 
You want to make sure you get Revelation right? When you're done reading it, it should point you to the Savior. What a privilege it has been. I have been humbled over the last several weeks. As I thought about the privilege it's been to get up in front of you and for us to discuss all things having to do with the church, that we get to do this together. I want to thank you for being a part of this. Here is my call to each of us. We will transition into Advent here next week. But let us not forget to ask that question. Are we being a New Testament church until we await the marriage supper of the Lamb? And if you are here today and you don't know Jesus, I want to ask you, is he inviting you so that you would participate as well? That would be our hope for you, that you could be as well at the marriage supper with the Lamb and of the bride. Let me pray. Jesus, we long to see you face to face. We long for our sorrow to be gone. We think of the, the things that our brother Tim prayed for our service earlier today, this morning. And we say, Lord, in light of what is coming, we have hope. And yet we still have sorrow. I pray that you would make Bethesda into people full of not only our sorrow, but through our sorrow full of joy. Because we've experienced the grace of being clothed white as snow. 